Our next speaker is Mr. Mick Wallace. Madness. madness. This is madness. We cannot fix a problem caused by capitalism with more capitalism. They hurt the people. I ended up at the end of a gun. On three occasions. I don't well to survive anyway. Madame Daly will speak. A union which allows fiscal rules to be broken for arms expenditure, not for housing or to put roofs over the heads of people. This is evidence of police violence. Whether you're an economic migrant or you're an asylum seeker, nobody deserves to be treated like this. And even having the neck to suggest separating people from their mothers. How dare you? You were in Pakistan. Can you tell us why you went and what you learned from your trip? It seems so long ago now. Doesn't it? It's three weeks. It was only three weeks. So much happens here. It was three weeks. But um, I suppose originally we had went because of the climate devastation <coughs> in Pakistan. The embassy here had been putting in a lot of work after that uh, devastation to try and get the European Union to assist in terms of humanitarian aid and so on, in terms of economic policy. And they had made a play and we ended up going with a group of... Um, other MEPs as well, but we don't like doing things officially, you know, so we said, right, okay, we'll go over and we'll do a little bit of, we weren't representing the parliament or anything, but on the Pakistan side, we had the honour, I suppose, of meeting a lot of, of the government forces and so on, but we also said, look, we want to do our own thing as well. So we spent uh, some bit of time with the Workers and Peasant Party in Lahore, uh, that was on our own time that we did work, and then we met the government in Islamabad and we went to Karachi ourselves as well. So really just to get a sense of the country post-climate devastation. It was in the run-up to the COP talks when this idea of loss and damage and the, the developed West, who's responsible for most of the global emissions, trying to repay uh, reparations, I suppose, rather than donations back to the countries who were suffering the most. So it was a real eye-opener, wasn't it? I can't remember half of it, but it was yeah. just... Well, I was just on the environmental aspect of it, um, people probably realise that Pakistan is responsible for 0.8% of global emissions today. That's today. We're not even talking historical. And uh, so that's less than 1%. But with a population of 220 million, uh, they're the eighth most vulnerable country on earth to the impact of climate change, which wasn't caused by them. Uh, I was at the COP in Egypt for the week, uh, which was, it was very interesting. Now, it is a bit of a talk shop, but still, I learned a lot there, just the same, especially from meeting, uh, you know, representatives from the different different countries, uh, from the global south and from the global north. But um, I suppose people should never forget that there was an agreement made in 1992 at, uh, at one of the earlier UN meetings on climate. And it was agreed that... Uh, that the developed world, which is mostly Europe and North America, would pay for their historical emissions. Now, in 2015, at the Paris Treaty, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the, the 2015 COP uh, was in Paris, and it, it was a kind of a landmark one because they made commitments that they hadn't made before. But this was also... The, the developed world paying for their historical emissions was also enshrined uh, in the Paris Treaty. Now, 
in 2015, which is the last year we have accurate figures for uh, all global emissions since the uh, start of the Industrial Revolution around 1850, the, uh, Europe and North America are responsible for 92% of all global emissions up to 2015. But what we have now uh, is we have the developed world failing to cop up the money to pay for their historical emissions on the basis that they think that China should be paying too. But this wasn't part of the deal. Now, China is a serious emitter now because it makes stuff for everybody. Uh, they make 90% of the solar panels in the, for the world. Uh, so they're uh, clocking up emissions by doing so. And we've outsourced, the developed world has outsourced a lot of their production to China. So China is emitting uh, more, uh, not more per head of population, but more of as a country. They're still only emitting one third per head of population what the Americans are emitting. But uh, China should pay for the emissions that they're emitting now anyway, irrespective of who they're making the stuff for. But they cannot be held responsible for the 92% of historical emissions that are the responsibility of Europe and North America. And if we are going to make progress on loss and damage, if we're going to make progress on dealing with the challenges of climate change, that is going to have to be accepted. And the, the developed countries are going to have to take responsibility for the damage they've done. And it's a big problem for the likes of Pakistan if they don't go to that space. Now, it was also interesting when we were in Pakistan, just on a different subject, it was amazing the amount of people in Pakistan who couldn't understand why there was no talk in the European Union about peace in the war. Whatever happened to the European Union uh, that promoted uh, diplomacy and dialogue? They were, they, were, they were bamboozled by it. They couldn't understand it. They, they were asking us, can you explain it to us? Why do you not want peace now? They couldn't understand this. And I mean, for us to even bring that discussion home, right, to, 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 for the, the politicians in Europe, it's, it's inexplicable the position they've taken, and it's so irrational. They cannot defend it from a rational position. It's so blatantly obvious to the likes of the people in Pakistan who are very aware that the war is having a big impact on them as well. I mean, for example, the dollar reached parity with the euro uh, because of the war, and it has had an impact on exports to Europe from Pakistan. Mm. Energy costs have gone up. It's having an impact on their production. It's going to have an impact on their uh, labour. Workers are going to be impacted. Uh, they, they could see cuts in their wages uh, while they're looking at uh, rising costs in food and energy. This war is having an impact way beyond Europe. And yet, here we are with so many politicians, close to 80% of our politicians, promoting a war that's not in the interest of anyone except US, NATO and the military-industrial complex. And one of the more really interesting meetings I thought that we had there was in relation, precisely in relation to the war, where they talked about the UN meeting that they'd been at and the unbelievable pressure they'd been put on 
under by the US in order to urge them not to abstain on the vote in relation to the Russia's war on Ukraine. Now, they held firm and they abstained, but they said that many other smaller countries buckled. And we found that really interesting because here's a major nation in the world, over 200 million people, and they are being bullied and browbeaten. And traditionally, Pakistan is a very pro-US country in, in many ways, but actually they kind of, they want to do business with everybody, uh, but the US is putting them under huge pressure, um, particularly don't like their relationship with China, trying to bully them in that regard as well, to break the link with China, whereas they want to do business <coughs> with China and with the US and with the EU and with everybody, and that's as it should be. But uh, I thought that was really interesting because they did hold firm. They are a former country that was colonized, obviously, like ourselves. They were very impressive people, even at government level and at all level, the awareness of climate change is, is dramatic, like, you know. We, we, we met a very impressive Minister of State for Foreign Affairs and, and she was the one that was in New York. Mm. And she said, I couldn't, have, I couldn't vote for a resolution that had no demand for peace, no demand for dialogue. How could I vote for that, she said. Mm. And uh, you're going to Greece next. What brings you to Greece? Or what takes you to Greece? Yeah, we feel like now we're, we're like an international <laughs> travel agency here now. People yeah, be going, right. God almighty, do they ever do any work back there? But actually, <laughs> all of this is part of our work. And, and, and the Greek trip is tragic in many ways. It's uh, one of, of a number of visits that we've made here. Basically, we had originally gone to Greece last year for the trial of uh, to visit in prison a Somali refugee who had steered a ship that the smuggler had abandoned uh, mm -hmm. on a boat from Turkey where people had died and because of the Greek laws in trying to prevent uh, migration, uh, he was given 142 years in jail for facilitating illegal entry into Greece. A young guy in his late 20s and when we were there, we met two other Afghan guys. Uh, one had travelled with his wife from Turkey, pregnant wife and a small child and the other guy had been on his own, sent by his family saying it's not safe for you in Turkey. Go to go to Greece, go to Europe, you'll be safe there. Oh, what, a, what a shock they got. But again, these two guys were on a boat. Uh, the smuggler abandoned the boat as they do <laughs> after the lads paying the money. And the boat ran into trouble. And like how innocent they were, like that they weren't smugglers. They called the Turkish Coast Guard, which meant that basically they were going to go back. But the Turkish Coast Guard surrounded the boat, did wheelies under to let the water come in more and then abandoned them there. And they were there in the dark. But eventually the Greek Coast Guard came, picked them up, but picked these two lads up and said one of them had destroyed the boat and said the other was the sort of smuggler. They were brought to court um, literally less than a half an hour. They didn't even know their lawyers were there. They couldn't speak to them. They're two Afghans um, and they were both given a 50-year sentence each. So they were utterly devastated. They have been in prison now for two and a half years. We had gone over in March and in April. Both times their appeals were supposed to be heard. Both times they were brought to the court. One of the guys, because of where he is in prison in Greece and because of all the islands and all that, it takes him three days to get to the court. They kept us there in the court all day, the first time for two days, and then at the end said, no, come back in a month's time crying, screaming, everything, uh, came back in a month's time and then they said, no, no, adjourn till the 8th of December. And we tried to get bail, their legal team tried to get bail. So they went out, got all the conditions met on the bail 
and they weren't let out. So this is the, hopefully the appeal. There's been so many anomalies and so many awful things. And the saddest thing that this is one of really hundreds of people, of migrants who are in prison in jails in Greece, in our Europe of European values of democracy, human rights and rule of law. It's, it's sick, but it's absolutely full, uh, um, everywhere. They've criminalised um, saving lives and they've criminalised the migrants themselves. And while international law says that people have a right to seek refuge, to seek asylum, now, they're not automatically entitled to it, but they are entitled to seek it. Well, we have a situation where we're paying uh, police forces, coast guards, to actually push people back into the water and risk their lives. There's, there's over 3,000 3, people drowning in the Mediterranean every year because of our policies. Think about it, mm. right? These people are fleeing countries that in, in many cases we've had, uh, we've helped to destroy by supporting uh, the bombing of them by the US or NATO or whoever. We impose economic policies, a financial imperialism that makes it impossible for them to, to wreak a living out of the land or wherever uh, in their own community. They're coming to Europe for, to try and uh, seek out a better life and we're pushing them back into the water and while we were in Greece the last time, there was 10 bodies came ashore, washed ashore, and their phones had been taken and their, their identity had been taken because they'd already been caught by the Greek Coast Guard and pushed back out again. The boat obviously sank and their bodies came in later, mm. right? Now, and we, and we lecture other countries about human rights. Mm. The hypocrisy of the European Union is nothing short of shocking. Yeah, I mean, only yesterday there was uh, investigative journalism done over the past year. The Lighthouse reports came out, which showed uh, a Syrian man being shot by Bulgarian authorities as he, you know, was being pushed back to Turkey. Um, we They are releasing three reports now into studies that they did for over a year about border violence in Bulgaria, Croatia and in Hungary, where systematically now, it's not an uh, isolated instance, this is a deliberate policy funded by EU money of pushing people back like there were appalling instances of a, um, you just gross violence abuse um, stripping people beating them robbing their phones pushing them back setting threatening them with dogs every sort of thing and this goes on all of the time yeah so it's it's a, a growing problem to be honest uh, it's getting worse and the since the war in Ukraine with the millions upon millions of Ukrainians who've arrived into Europe we have a two very apparent two-tier system now where the Ukrainians are being looked after to an extent, and so they should be, uh, but the doors are being shut even louder on anybody else, for sure. And at the same time, we're witnessing, uh, and we're obviously opposing it, but there's been a huge increase in the militarization of Europe. So while we're spending more and more money, and there's more direct money now coming out of the EU coffers, the European Union, uh, their own financial framework, their own budget, for the first time now, there's actually money going direct to military spend. We're spending a whole lot of money in places like, for example, for Africa. I was down in Mozambique about six, seven weeks ago uh, witnessing EU training 
Mozambique soldiers. Now you'll say to yourself, what in God's name are the European Union doing down in the south of Africa training Mozambique soldiers? Well, part of the reason is, the main reason is that uh, unfortunately there has been a, a gas find in northern Mozambique uh, in a place called Cabo Delgado and uh, Two European companies were brought in to explore uh, the possibility of uh, excavation. <coughs> French Energies, uh, Total Energies from France, and any from Italy. So, <coughs> anyway, the uh, the prospects looked good, and Total Energies uh, moved over 2,000 farmers off their land against their will. They hired mercenaries to do it. Uh, fighting started and then you had Islamic fighters from neighbouring countries coming in to actually help and before you, uh, what was originally fighting turned into a bit of a war. So now in order to uh, clear the field for uh, European companies, we're to help the Mozambique uh, government uh, to facilitate these European companies, we're going to help the Mozambique to train some of their soldiers. And it's already been clear that new gas fields shouldn't be open from an environmental perspective. And Mozambique suffers dramatically from uh, the impact of climate change. And if this, these gas fields were actually explored, it would take a number of years before any gas will be delivered and sold. It'll take even longer before there's any profit and it'll probably take forever before the people of Mozambique actually benefit from it because the profits will go with the European companies. So we have a European Union that's spending more and more money on military in Africa in order to secure access to resources. Now, uh, speaking about the, the Greek Coast Guard and the other bodies keeping people, pushing people back out into the Mediterranean, a lot of our military spend is also going on pushback, building bigger borders, stronger borders, paying more police, buying better equipment for them in order to keep out the people whose lives we've already destroyed. So uh, you, you have the military people gaining on all ends and we have the European taxpayers paying for it. It's the same companies, and meanwhile, we shouldn't. There's a massive, like, there's a record housing crisis all across uh, Europe with massive homelessness, people not being able to have secure accommodation, people living longer and longer at home with their parents, can't go out on their own. Um, really huge problem with health, education, so on. All of that money could be going to that, but no, increasingly it isn't. And this, as I say, it's the same companies benefiting all the time. And what's the media like in Ireland? Is it as, is it as complicit in Ireland, uh, complicit with war crimes in Ireland as it is uh, in the United States? Yeah, it's shocking, isn't it? I mean, for us, we scratch our heads constantly. <laughs> it's appalling. I mean, it really is. And um, Mick often makes the point that, you know, they've, They've been bragging, like from the likes of the National Endowment of Democracy, that they funded media all over Europe, and therefore Ireland must be the same. But we find them incredibly compliant. I mean, 
the media now doesn't report. I mean, where are the old days where you might send somebody to a meeting, they say, well, he said this, she said this, there's the information, and sure, look, make up your mind yourself. Now it's all this spin, it's never evidence-based, it's all to set a certain agenda, and we've been absolutely demonised at home. I mean, we were in the Irish Parliament for eight years, and we were very well known, and we had done a lot of work in challenging the police force in Ireland in terms of corruption in the building industry, and so on and we struck quite a few blows in our time um, and I suppose in some ways now because we're out in Europe this is a bit of payback so we have gone from being very well respected across the board and considered now we are uh, figures of polarization like we have definitely been seen to be a bit toxic the story is like we've gone to Europe and gone mad basically um, and I suppose when people are subjected to that so often, it, some of that sinks in, you know, it's been, they're appalling, they are really I, appalling. I mean, we've been accused of being Putin's puppets uh, because, because we're looking for peace and we're not promoting war. We're not taking Russia's side in the war. We're not taking uh, anyone's side in the war. We're looking for peace. And we're being accused of being pro-Putin because we're looking for peace. We're accused of being pro-Chinese because we don't see the logic of us of Europe falling out with the Chinese. And we've we've seen a huge drive by the US to drive a wedge between Europe and Russia and also between Europe and China. We didn't think it would work, but sadly it seems to be working, and we have Europe doing things that are not in their better interest to suit the Americans. Because the Americans do have a problem with China. We don't, but we're creating problems with them. The Americans obviously have a problem with the fact, not that China is a threat to the security of the people of America, which it isn't, but it is a threat to America's financial supremacy. It's a threat to the supremacy of the dollar. And they're very important to the Americans, and the Americans are panicking a bit. And uh, they're trying now to make us fall out with China. And because we are pointing out a rational position on that, we're also being accused by the Irish media of being pro-Chinese. Mm -hmm. And because uh, we, we obviously, uh, while there, there was a huge furore over the protests uh, in Iran recently, and there, there, there was uh, genuine protest by peaceful protesters who are pretty tired of, of people of a religious dimension probably telling them what to do, and uh, the people have every right to protest, and hopefully they can make some changes that, that suits them better. But we also pointed out that some of the opposition are being armed. There was over 60 policemen shot. People were being armed. The Americans actually uh, boasted about arming some of them from Kurdistan, Iraq. And uh, it wasn't actually helping the people of Iran to solve their problems by us interfering in it. And we, by pointing that out, we're also we're puppets of Iran. We're, we're puppets of so many people now that must be starting to lose count. Mm. Well, I think yeah, it, you guys must be busy. You must be sore from being all, doing all that. Well, people you know, are wondering where, like, we're, we're on the payroll of so many of them. I don't know what bank accounts they're using because we haven't yeah, seen right. any of the cash, unfortunately, you know. But uh, no, look, at one of the, I mean, it, it's not different than 
how the mainstream media are behaving elsewhere. And I think we should be cognizant that wars now are being fought in different ways. And I don't think we'll see the boots on the ground in the olden days. Obviously, heavy weaponry, drones, all that technology, but information or disinformation and all of that is a huge big money spinner. So there's a whole industry around that, a massive threat inflation about the enemy and disinformation. So now we have meeting after meeting in here when they say we're losing losing the hearts and minds of the people of Europe. And they don't say, well, let's look at the policies we're doing of alienating them. No, it's Russian disinformation and that. So that's all in the pipeline as well. There's a lot of money to be made out of that too. Do you guys have time for one more question or do we need to wrap now? Because I don't want to abuse No, far away. Well, go ahead. Well, we're supposed to wrap, but uh, one more question. Go ahead, quick. Okay, sure. So where do you guys get your independent spirit from? Were you raised by activists? Were you raised by people who are kind of uh, skeptical about uh, authority? Where does it come from? Well, I definitely wasn't. I can't speak for Mick. No, I, I would come from a very conservative background, but <laughs> uh, I'm quite religious, Catholic Ireland, of course. I'm not Catholic now, but um, everybody in Ireland was born a Catholic. Um, my father would have been in the army, but like the Irish army is a neutral army and all that with a good peacekeeping history. But I suppose we were critical thinkers. I have a brother who's actually a Jesuit priest, uh, who does a lot of social justice work. My sister has done a lot of work on Palestine. So I suppose we're all a bit weird, really. I don't know. But yeah, no, didn't come from that background, but stumbled kind of into it, you know? <laughs> well, I, How did you stumble into it? I don't know. Did you have like an aha moment or is that no, too long? No, I went we to college, to... I suppose, and, you know, went home and went a bit mad. Like, so I became the president of the students' union in the university I was in. At that time, it was the 1980s. There were all education cuts, great protests. And I actually learned the power of protest and the power of that if you present ideas to people, in a way in which reaches out and meets them where they are, that you can build a kind of a powerful army that's actually second to none. And, and that has remained with me all the time, that if you articulate in the right way, you can win the years of people. So student politics, then shop steward, community activist, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> anyway. Well, I also came from a very, a, a very strong uh, Catholic family. Uh, I was one of 12 children. Uh, both my parents were, were two tough people. Um, they were pretty independent-minded as well. Um, but I, uh, in terms of influence, uh, I, went to, I went to New York um, when I was 17, um, uh, before you were born. And uh, I, I was looking for, I had, no, I had no papers or anything, but I couldn't get work in New York. And I went to Boston. And uh, I got work there. I, I managed to falsify some papers. And uh, anyway, I, my plan was to go down to South America at the time, and uh, which I did. And I ended up spending uh, nine months, or five months in Latin America after working in the States. And I went back to the States after that again to work and pay back some money I owed. But because I had, I had bugger all money most of the time in Latin America, uh, no money at all a lot of the time. Uh, I had an aunt who was a Franciscan nun. Uh, working with the poor in Bolivia at the time, and I was wanting to go see her, which I did. But so I was in Latin America when the Americans killed Allende, and uh, I was also there. So that was 73, 74. I was there, and uh, I was in Bolivia when the American Rangers from Panama broke up the miners' strike at the time, and they killed 160 of the miners, and it wasn't even reported in the papers back home at the time, which uh, I never forgot. So. Uh, I had come down. I had gone down through Central America, and right through South America, and uh, back up again. But um, uh, it left a huge uh, 
mark on me uh, when I saw what uh, Amer US imperialism was actually doing to the people of Latin America, because I saw firsthand uh, how horrific uh, the whole thing was. So anyway, that was part of my early education. Oh, nice. Wow. Well, sorry, New York wasn't more hospitable. <laughs> we love you. New York. If I had been around, I would have uh, <laughs> made sure to help you get a job. Yeah. Well, thank you both so much. This has been really excellent. I'm so uh, grateful for you uh, making the time to talk to us. A no pleasure problem. as always, Katie. Thanks very much for having us right. on. All right, good luck. Of course.